This episode, I'm chatting to May and Bam Bang. May is a clinical nurse consultant based in Melbourne at the Royal Children's Hospital. May's been at RCH since 1985. She manages and coordinates the care of paediatric cardiac surgery patients, ensuring they and their families receive the highest standard of care and support. May is also joined by her colleague, Bam Bang, Associate Unit Manager at RCH, who works closely with May in their cardiac theatre team. My vision about this very intensive type of nursing, quick space, very challenging, and you know, treating the care holistic as much as possible, treating not just a patient, right? Not just a number, but just as a patient, underneath the drapes, and also thinking about if this is your child, how would you best treat this child? To begin, we'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on Gadigal land in Warung otherwise known as Sydney. We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and the land that you're listening in from today. We pay our respects to the elders, past, present and emerging, and pass that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners. Well, thank you for joining us. Very exciting to have you here. May, as I mentioned, um, you've been a nurse with RCH since like 1985. Tell me a little bit, I guess, about your background and how you kind of came into paediatric cardiology. Thank you very much for inviting me and Bang Bang for your podcast and we feel really privileged to be considered. Yes, I'd like to share my, a little bit of my nursing background and to start off with a humble beginnings. It is way back in 1972. That's when I first started my general nursing. I flew from my homeland, which is Malaysia, and landed at Heathrow Airport in the middle of the night after a 20 hours of flight. Those days are just long. But anyway, I persevered and I achieved my general training at a hospital called the Royal Cornwall Hospital, southeast of England. And uh, then I proceeded to do midwifery in Scotland. And one day I saw the advertisement that Australia is asking for new recruits from UK. And my best friend and myself jumped on the next plane and here we are in Melbourne from that very day, from 1978, I think. I actually practiced as a midwife initially at the Royal Women's Hospital, but I changed my direction to be an operating room nurse. I loved every minute of my general training in UK, thanks to my wonderful, caring, and very strict English sisters. They're called sisters because you know, they are trained nurses. In England, they call them sisters and you never address them by their names. And funny enough, currently my boss, Christian Brizard, calls me Sister May. Well, I take it as an endearment. So my first word actually allocated as a very junior nurse was in casualty, but this emergency department or ED these days. And one day, a child was admitted to casualty with very, very blue lips and with difficulty in breathing. I knew very little about cardiac those days. I have no idea what was going on, but the child was rather whisked away rather quickly. And to cut the story short, I discovered later this patient was actually discharged home, healthy, after going through open heart surgery in London. I said, oh, wow, I want to be part of that. That has actually laid my foundation as to why I like pediatric cardiac nursing these days. And so now I'm actually standing next to the surgeons and, you know, helping to repair those little hearts. That patient, by the way, has a normally called a pathology of fellows. 
So it's a common childhood disease and it's a treatable, of course, with surgery. So that laid my foundation. That's how I like uh, pediatric cardiac surgery so much now. I want to be part of it. And here I am, I'm part of it. I love that. After so many years, of, since 1985, when I joined the Royal Children's Hospital. 1985. Do you, um, have you gotten sick of it yet or do you still love it? No, or? I still come to work quite excited, you know, to do every day is different. Yeah. Yes, I'm not sick of it at all because I can see that, it, you know, you know, I treat as my vocation. Like I like to do this sort of work and I like the hustle and bustle of, of uh, cardiac surgery. There's no, no day's routine. No day's a routine day for me. I love that. What about you, Bang Bang? How did you get into cardiac cardiology? Yes, I'm starting in Indonesia in 85, working in Jakarta. And then some my centers would like to establish the pediatric cardiac surgery. So all the teams come to Royal Children Hospital in Melbourne because the Royal Children is the world's famous hospital for cardiac surgery. And sure enough, in 1990, I was sent here for learning until 1991. And then some 10 years back to Indonesia, established the pediatric cardiac surgery in Indonesia. So I have opportunity actually come back to Royal Children's working as a part of the team, which is, is very proud because this team is my dream team. I love that. That's so nice. That's so good. And I, I guess in terms of, I know that you've, you've just told me that every day is different, but I guess in terms of your responsibilities and your typical day-to-day for both of you, what, what does that look like? Well, actually, I start my day. A typical day for me is 5.30 in the morning with yoga on my mat. <laughs> yes. That's how we keep us going. Yeah, yoga my mat. And our shift actually starts at 8 o'clock, but I like to be here at 7.30 so I can check my email, talk to my cardiac coordinator to see if there's any changes, talk to a different craft group, and, you know, to get the schedule going. So we literally, the patients in theatre by about quarter past eight. So we start both theatres running by then, and there's a lot of communication throughout the day with different craft group, change the pace of operating, the, or change the schedule if there's emergency arriving in in, in, the, in the Rosella, which is our ICU. So there's a lot of communication right through the day. But my focus for the day is to have a momentum on delivering clinical care. My focus is about, you know, okay, we're changing the list, but we have to prioritize and be flexible in thinking how we're going to manage that within the hours of operating. The typical day, I would say, there's no typical day for us, but a day is atypical. But having yoga on mat is typical. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. I love that. You, what is it? You win the morning, win the day? Every day? Yeah. Every yeah. day. It was at night as well before going to, going to bed. Yeah, I was going to say, how yeah. do you like unwind? You know, start the morning with yoga and the, end the day with yoga kind of? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Bang, for Bang Bang, I think he's, you, you pray. Bang Bang does pray in the morning, no doubt about it. And that is, you know, that's how he's remained so calm and cool right through the day compared to me. <laughs> <laughs> he's your, he keeps you grounded. 
Yeah, you keep me grounded, all right. Yeah. <laughs> I know that you mentioned in terms of clinical care, and I know you've been involved in the standards of care for childhood onset heart disease. I know we've spoken about that before on the podcast, and I think it's a really abstract thing when they're starting to be developed. But I guess in your perspectives, what does that actually look like practically? Having that standard of care, what does that mean for for families and patients coming into a hospital? Yeah, it's a very good question. You know, the, my vision about in, like you know, this very intensive type of nursing, quick space, thing on your feet, they're very challenging. And, to, you know, treating the care holistic as much as possible, treating not just a patient, right? Not just a number, but just as a patient underneath the drapes. And also thinking about if this is your child, how would you best treat this child? How would you care for this child? And also how would the family think, you know, how much we've contributed to the care? We always have that in mind. I think having that in mind, you would actually do a, a fairly good job, I would suggest, I would say. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I think a lot about when I talk to my mom and dad about that process of them understanding what was going on before surgeries was they really valued people that took them aside away from the hustle bustle and kind of step-by-step answered their questions and asked that sort of stuff with them. And I guess for you guys working in this hospital and having this every day, how do you, how do you spend that time with caregivers and and parents to make sure that they do know what's happening? And I guess they, they understand what's happening. They have a very good process by initiated initially by our cardiac coordinator and she's Kate in the administration office. So they have a pre-admission clinic. Once a patient is waitlisted on the list, they have a, a patient's portal and then have a pre-admission clinic. So from the portal and the pre-admission clinic, you know, X-ray test is done to make sure they, you know, that the surgery goes ahead. And they get a lot of information about the pre-op stay in ICU, how they actually come to theater, their journey, in other words, throughout the journey in operating suite. And if the patient is really complex, you, they are assigned a care coordinator in the post-operative phase. When they actually arrive in theater, we accompany them to theater and one of the parents will come into theater before the patient is induced to sleep. And then we accompany the parents out. So at that point in time, you'll be amazed that, you know, surprisingly, I say, they talk very little because they're so well primed already, pre-op and post-op. You know, we're very sensitive about the emotions, you know, the anxiety. So it's a case-by-case scenario. The nurses are quite well trained to assess that, you know, the physical and the mental well-being of the parent when you come out of the room. So, and we usually, you know, ask if they need anything else. Do you need to distress yourself? We suggest that you can go down to the family hub, which is on the ground floor north building where they can have a coffee or walk in the park or do things that, you know, will occupy the time. However, I've come across parents, most of the time, they will tell me that I need to go and do laundry. <laughs> I say, it's a good thing to keep your mind away while the, your child is having surgery. That's it. We know? all cope in different ways, even yeah. if it is laundry. Yeah. <laughs> I know there's a lot of tension sometimes when we talk about this stuff about I guess, giving people in stressful situations too much information or giving them all the facts. And I guess from your experiences, do you think it's better for them to be so like empowered with that knowledge? Do you think that helps them emotionally? I think so. Yeah. 
as I said, as you just said, they empower with the knowledge already. All right. And there's you know, little needs to be said while the child is actually in theater because this is the, the crux of the uh, moment. All right. Eventually, they're primed to have this surgery. The surgeons have talked to them in great length. So, you know, having that lighted quiet spot as you they leave the theater, I'm sure they're full of thoughts, anxiety, you know, and, you know, just give them a breather. In other words, we answer the question if they ask us. But we'd yeah. rather give them a breather, like, you know, let them just quietly Process. go to the sport and go and do the laundry. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Looking back on your careers, has there been, I suppose, a, a particular bub along the way or a particular family that has kind of stayed with you and that you remember their journey? Yes, I have remembered a journey. I can relate to an incident that just eventually it was a pleasant outcome, but it wasn't pleasant at the beginning. And, you know, and it was very challenging for myself and the parent herself. It was actually during the COVID pandemic era. There was an emergency admitted to, you know, Rosella, which is our ICU. And the child was admitted with sepsis. So we all treat the kid as if the child has COVID, so suspected COVID, and is nursed in an isolation room. So here we are, is, you know, this child can arrest any time. So we need to attend to some emergency procedures for the child. So I fronted up, I was on call, fronted up, put all my PPE gear in, you know, the goggles, you know, the pool hood, the, the gowns, everything. Went into the, in the room and I saw the mom. So at that instance, she didn't understand why she had to leave the room. You know, people, you know, the ICU nurse was trying to get her to leave the room so that the surgical team can attend to the child. But uh, she didn't want to leave the room. She was really anxious, was crying. But nonetheless, she, by the way, she was Vietnamese, so she couldn't understand much English. And all I did was tap on the shoulder and practice some transcultural nursing at that point, or spiritual, if you like to call it, and put my hands together in a prayer position and chanted some sort of Buddhist chant. It wasn't Buddhist chant, it was my yoga chant, <laughs> Namaste. So, and she just looked at me and she put her hands together again and we both sort of, you know, not then do some like Buddhist type of action. And then she was happy to leave. She was grateful. The child, you know, eventually had the emergency procedures done and it was a good outcome. When I saw the mom again, when the child is in ICU, we attend to a few more procedures on and off. So every time I entered the room in PPE, she's dead, chanting away. <laughs> so that was um, one of my experiences that I will not forget. Stuff stays with you. There are many others, but this one really caught my... Yeah. I will remember it for a while because the mom was really grateful. As you said, she, she didn't speak much English. Yeah. And just having someone there when you're stressed out to be like, you know, you're okay. Like one of those weird moments where language doesn't really need to be there. It's just an understanding. It's the, uh, the action and the body language. It, it tells a lot to the parents how you behave in front of them. Yeah. And, you know, how you appear in front of them. Yeah. Beautiful. I guess in terms of looking at both of your journeys from when you first started in medicine, um, to now, and I know this is going to be a huge question, but I guess what what have you seen evolve in um, pediatric cardiology care? Um, and I guess in terms of, of what you do, what has been one of the best things that has changed in the space? 
well, yes, I can relate that to the past. When I first started here, there was only one theatre, one cardiac theatre with four nurses and two surgeons. The evolution now advanced to a state where the cardiac surgery is one of the most renowned in the world, a big centre for training fellows and uh, managing interstate patients from South Australia, Northern Territory, and a bit from Perth, the complexities from Perth have come to us. And uh, it's huge. It's grown a lot you know, over the years. And I would say it has evolved successfully under great leaders and for the past and the present. That goes without saying about my predecessor unit manager, Debbie, who actually trained us well. She was authoritarian in her thinking, very military, but we, she really trained us well that we can actually you know, be able to function with only minimal staff. And uh, we, you know, great thanks to her and she managed very well before she retired, of course, and then I took over in 85 since. And um, it was a great era. You know, over the years, you know, there's ups and there's downs, no doubt about it. It's not just all ups, but there's a lot of downs as well. But cardiac surgery, nonetheless, have progressed to a state that now we have two theaters and uh, ICU has uh, expanded. The post-operative ward with the sport the koala has expanded. So, and a lot of services, the peripheral services have all expanded. It's just not us. But without the peripheral services, I think cardiac surgery won't get where it is today as well. So there is, and there are programs, scientific programs, such as the ECMO, you know, the extracorporeal oxygenation program, and the bridge to transplant program, you know, the, uh, the, we call it the ventral device, assistant device program, such as the Berlin Heart and the HeartMate 3 now, which it really is a bridge to transplant. You know, these are the advances technically in, uh, in our service. And in 1985, there wasn't even heart transplant being offered. But it happened in 1988. And remember the date, 4th of October, we were here doing our first transplant at night. That's so it was great. It was such a, you know, such a feeling that the transplant went very well. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this is evolution of time. You know, it's a lot, a lot of progress has been made over the years. And so on in, you know, in the human resources side with uh, the number of nurses have grown. So, yeah, we still have very loyal nurses who have stayed with me since, like, bang, bang. <laughs> Dude, I feel like you guys are going to be... It'll be 20 years' time and we'll be having this conversation again, you guys. Oh, no, no. I can tell you in 20 years' time, you'll be talking to a different person. Oh, don't tell me that. Look, I I guess as well, I think I know this in a personal aspect, but when there's new research that comes forward, I think for a lot of heart kids, we kind of interact with that research via a specialist. I guess when we talk about it in a clinical sense and in in surgery and in hospital sense, how does, I suppose, new research change the way that you you do processes? Well, at this point in time, I have to congratulate our chief professionist, Steve Horton. Right? He's one of the ones who's masterminded a lot of research behind the cardiopulmonary bypass techniques over the years. And we as nurses work together with him along that. So how the, the, he's the perfusion department where perfusion meaning they run the heart-lung machine and Steve Porton really masterminded a lot of techniques behind the cardiopulmonary bypass techniques. And without it, you know, without his research, without his innovations, cardiac surgery would not be 
having such good outcome. He's one of the highest level of scientists I've ever worked with. So, you know, research does contribute a lot to outcomes and actually encourage the nurses to look at practices that's historical being instilled into us. But why are we practicing historical practices when there's no evidence base? So, you know, with research, it will move us forward. It will move the nurses to thinking about doing their master's or something that they are interested in so that it can actually improve outcomes. It definitely helps outcomes. And if you talk about scientific research, we do a lot of it. We more or less assist the surgeons to collect you know, specimens or whatever they need in the form of uh, research. And uh, we strongly have very uh, strong link with MCRI as to why they're doing the research. You know, it's a good thing that uh, is what good for the nurses. But Steve Morton needs to be recognized, you know, his oh, innovations, yeah. you know, with towards the, uh, the VAT program, the ECMO program, and one of his uh, baby is isolated cerebral perfusion. I won't expand on that, but, you know, it really has helped a particular congenital group of patients, the hypoplastic left heart syndrome, you know, really achieve great heights. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, changing lives yes. with it. I do want to step back just a little bit because we had a conversation a little bit earlier about, um, I guess, the process of supporting parents. Um, I guess from your perspective, what what is the advice for a parent that presents to a hospital who is a little bit anxious and isn't quite sure what's going on? What would be, I suppose, your advice to them? I can offer my humble suggestion <laughs> pertaining to my yoga philosophy, if you don't mind. And I do think that, you know, to advise parents, they're super anxious, no doubt about it. There are different levels of anxiety. You know, some parents cope well, some don't cope so well. So I would actually offer my humble suggestions as to think about the mind, body, and soul. The mind being mindful and be honest with yourself. You've got to be mindful of what you can do now and what you can do in the long term, right? As for the body, you know, your child has surgery. So your, there is life changes in your lifestyle. There's a sea change. So everything is going to be a little bit different. So in other words, you've got to look after yourself first. You have to have good nutrition, good rest, good exercise, some sort of a, you know, activity that you can cope looking after your child. Because there is going to be a change, you know, no matter what it is. And thirdly, I would say soul. And uh, you're never alone. There are a lot of kind souls out there, especially our cardiac coordinator, Kate. She's full of information, you know, full of patients' information. And, uh, you know, and she's given direct numbers for all these parents to ring her at any time. So there are a lot of kind souls out there and you're never alone. So feel free to ask for help. Don't take it all on board yourself that you are, there's no one out there and you know, you're left standing alone, not understanding what cardiac surgery is all about. You know, there's uh, you know, a lot of kind souls out there. And lastly, I would say, you know, if you're an interstate patient or going to interstate with a child having cardiac surgery or come for cardiac surgery at a children's from interstate, you're never alone too. Because with the national standards of the heart kits, it's going to be published soon no matter which state we're going to be practicing the same way. So don't, you know, be uh, anxious or, you know, the anxiety level that, oh, you're going to New South Wales, it's going to be different. That's why we're doing the national standards for heart kids. You're going to be the same. 
So just be reassured. Yeah. Perfect. And look, my very last question is, obviously you've ded- dedicated so much of your life to being kind souls in the cardiac pediatric area. Thank you. But my question is, why do you, I guess, why do you keep rocking up every day? What is it that is so rewarding about what you do? Yes, I can break it down into a few points. One mm-hmm. is to actually, the very important thing is to have a feedback about the family, how they do when we receive thank you cards from them, a little notes and the feedback from the surgeons, you know, like we have, we have meetings every week to say how the, you know, the group of patients we operated last week, how are they this, this week and the progress. So we like to have a sort of fun, some sort of feedback. And, uh, you know, as I say, things are not always panning out well, 100% well. And, uh, you know, there are times that not so well, but at least the nurses, the team is aware that they're actually doing what they can to improve the health outcome. So that's a good thing. And to have received thank you notes from the parents is a wonderful thing. Occasionally we do. That's the best ever. And indirectly, we know that we have contributed to the care. And why we front up, the other thing is about this hospital is so renowned for this training. I front up as well because we are part of it. The nurses are formed a part of a major training program for the fellows from overseas. And to know when the fellows leave after one year that they, bec- they can become consultants in their own right, in their own country, and also run units like Christian Brizard does. It's a wonderful thing. That's why we front up to be part of that. And lastly, having nurses coming to be trained in cardiac surgery and take cardiac surgery as a vocation and how they progress from very inexperienced nurses to a level where they can uh, perform, you know, individually and autonomously. And, you know, that's what makes you happy that you want to come to work and help these young nurses to progress and, and stay in cardiac surgery. Don't go away. <laughs> this is rewarding, you know, for, you know, yeah. the, you know, especially families and the nurses become, you know, the soul of the unit, more or less. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Look, I remember a lot of nurses that like supported my family growing up and we've got like, we know all of their names. We know all of the yeah. doctors. We remember yep. them. I go to the I go to like hospitals now, and I'd be like, "Oh, this was my first doctor, and this was like the nurses, yep. and this was, and everybody knows everybody." Yep. So it is. Yep. <laughs> yep. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for for coming on and for sharing with us. It's been so beautiful to have you here. Thank you very much for considering us. I feel very proud to represent uh, the Royal Children's Hospital. I'm very thankful to be able to pick your brains and to have time with you and thank you for the work that you do. This podcast deals with some heavy things. If this brings up anything for you or somebody that you love, it's important to reach out for help. The Heart Kids Helpline provides support, advice and guidance for people impacted by childhood heart disease. You can call the helpline on 1800 432 785. To access more information about childhood heart disease as well as support from Heart Kids, visit the website heartkids.org.au. The information on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice from your doctor or healthcare team. Always talk to your doctor about matters that affect your health or your family's health.